what some people in the Bitcoin community have in common is they don't know what they don't know, but they, they think they know everything. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all? Are you all having a great week? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with George Gammon, where we're going to discuss his thoughts regarding Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. We're going to kick off today with BlockFi, as they had a huge announcement recently. BlockFi is about to launch a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card, which is coming in early 2021. It's something I've been very excited about. So check this out. Card users can earn a market lead in 1.5% rewards in Bitcoin on all card purchases. There is a $200 annual fee, but you can earn a $250 reward bonus in Bitcoin after spending $3,000 in the first three months. So you can stack sats with all your card purchases. The waitlist registration is now open to all registered BlockFi clients. And if you want to join the priority waiting list, then you just need to open up a BlockFi account. The public waitlist is slated to open in early January. If you are interested in this and checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we're going to talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And it's the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you want to know why? Well, firstly, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange and security is really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So if you have an issue, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever that issue is, they're going to help you get that fixed. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available on the iPhone and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so onto the show today, and I am joined by George Gammon. After seeing him go toe-for-toe with a few Bitcoiners on Twitter, I invited him on the show to talk about Bitcoin. Now, George is a macro investor, and while he believes in Bitcoin as a scarce asset, he has been calling into question some of the more extreme Bitcoin positions on Twitter. So, us Bitcoiners, we can get a little bit carried away with our memes and our future projections. You know, Does Bitcoin really fix everything? I mean, I'm confident about Bitcoin and future adoption and the massive impact it can have on the world, but there are certain hurdles that it still has to overcome. So I did ask George to come on and talk about his Bitcoin thesis, what he thinks are the strengths and weaknesses of Bitcoin, but also some of his criticisms about some of the more extreme positions that people take. And like I said, while I have a high conviction with Bitcoin, and it is my only investment, it is always worth talking to other investors, those who are maybe less bullish on Bitcoin, even no coiners, to consider their takes. Because I think when you speak to them, you can learn a bit more. And maybe that's helpful information. So it's pretty interesting to hear from George. I hope you enjoyed this. If you do want to get in touch, you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. Outside of that, my other show, Defiance, I've got the final part of Chaos coming out on Thursday. Hopefully you'll get to check that series out. And I'm working hard on my plans for 2021. I've got some really exciting things coming. Hopefully an email service and hopefully a third podcast. We'll have to see about that. Anyway, have a great week and I'll see you all on Friday. George, how are you? I'm extremely well. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on, man. It's uh, 
good to good to finally connect with you because I've seen you out there fighting a little bit with the Bitcoiners. They've been giving you a bit of shit. <laughs> You've been dipping your toes in the water of the Bitcoin world and not I, liking I, everything you see. I think it's all in good fun. And um, I threw out some questions on Twitter the other day to try to get some answers to questions that I knew nobody could answer. And I know that sounds weird, but okay. uh, so I, I, I was trying to figure out some really kind of complex stuff that, that was kind of merging the Bitcoin world and the macro world. So I was asking uh, more basic questions that I figured people could answer to try to connect the dots. And uh, people were jumping on me. They assumed, for whatever reason, it's kind of bizarre that I like I just stumbled across Bitcoin like a week ago, and just yeah. <laughs> like, where I have just, you been, man? Like I just started thinking about this. I've been obsessing with macro since 2012, and uh, I thought a lot about Bitcoin. And not only that, but my YouTube channel. I've got over 400 videos now where I've uh, whiteboard videos and interviews where I talk about mm -hmm. macro. So it was pretty surprising to see some people would assume that uh, it's the first time I started thinking about Bitcoin. But uh, I think a lot of people, you know, they probably didn't watch my channel or something like that. But it was all in good fun. Well, well, I watched a bit of it, but it's a tough crowd, man. It's a tough crowd. If you don't instantly understand Bitcoin and instantly agree with the ideology and um, then then you're immediately wrong and you're an idiot. So I hope well, you've learned that lesson. Yeah, and unfortunately, the macro is so complex for even the, the, the pros like, uh, you know, like Snyder and Brent Johnson and Luke Roman and Lynn Alden, uh, that there, there's no way that any one human being can possibly know enough to pr predict everything perfectly. It's like the weather. There, there's just way too many variables. And I, I've noticed with what some people, not all, but what some people in the Bitcoin community have in common is they don't know what they don't know, but they, they think they know everything. <laughs> and, <laughs> and those are the people that, that, are, that are dangerous, the people that aren't humble enough to know that there are things that uh, they have not considered. And um, there are no certainties. There are only probabilities. And, uh, but, but it's not just them. It's, it's, that's we, we as human beings, that's kind of our default mode. And I think that we need to recognize that as prudent investors, regardless of what we're buying as an asset class, and realize that as humans, that's one of our weaknesses. And mm -hmm. uh, we need to try to keep that in check. All right. Well, let, let me give you a little bit of background to, to my approach. And then I think we should probably work through some of your questions and I'll tell you my thinking. So this kind of macro stuff is new to me. You know, I started when I started the podcast three years ago, like I'm a creative, my background's right. advertising and I discovered Bitcoin, got an interest in it. And I just found the technical side, highly complex and the economic side also highly complex. I'm just a creative. I, I like to design and create stories and create pictures and things. So I got into this podcast game just to ask people questions and you know, some of it sinks in. But I do have a strong conviction with Bitcoin, but I also clash with some of the Bitcoiners because I am not, let's say, I don't fully agree with all of their ideas or sometimes some of their ideas take me a little bit longer to get. Um, I get called a statist a lot. Um, I theoretically like a lot of what libertarians stand for. Um, when I try and game it out, I still find some certain issues with you know getting to 
uh, like a libertarian society. Um, so that's one of the areas I get I clash with them on. And you know, sometimes I talk about uh, ideas to do with the state. Like recently, I've been trying to understand why the state exists. You know, if um, you know, if libertarian ideas are so good, why why do we have a state? And I'm trying to understand like way humans kind of group together and things like that so i tend to just be quite curious and ask a lot of questions but that does run me afoul with the bitcoiners as, as well but i do have quite a high bar conviction with bitcoin at the same time but i th- i like to think i make a show for people who are like me who they don't have they don't think like lynn alden they don't have you know 10 hours a day to yeah, spend in understand economics. They've got two, they've got kids and they go to work right. and they come home and they've got about half an hour to an hour maybe in the car on the train where they can listen to a podcast and maybe get a few pointers in the right direction to maybe where they should put their investments. And right. that's me. That's like try and keeping it super simple. And I think if you'd have had you've had the conversation with Rao, which I've watched and I think that was good. I don't agree with Rao on everything. If you sat down with Saifedina Moose, he would hammer you into certain ideas I th- i'd like to think I-, I can keep things a bit simple but i want to have a go at some of your because you're looking at it so let's, let's, as a starting point where are you at with the whole bitcoin idea because you haven't dismissed it you're considering well, it but, but that's the irony I'm, I'm long bitcoin okay you're in i, I own bitcoin I'm, I'm i think that's a fantastic speculation there's incredible asymmetry i i just like i said on twitter i could easily argue for the price not just going to a hundred thousand but the price going to a million. Mm-hmm. But that, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's a panacea. And uh, I think at the end of the day, because we are humans, that we end up with a, with a very similar system to what we have right now. And what I did in one of my videos is I went back and looked through the history of the gold standard and where we started with banking. And we started with what they call full reserve banking, And in the United States, we then moved to a system called free banking. And then it was nationalized uh, at the beginning of the Civil War. And then we had the central banking, which started in Mm -hmm. our country in 1913. And then we went off the gold standard in 1933, kind of, you know, quasi-gold standard, if you want to call it that. And then uh, we had Bretton Woods in 1944, and that took us to the euro dollar system, which if you study Jeff Snyder's work, uh, he would argue that that was the catalyst to the GFC in 2008. So I, I go through kind of a thought experiment of, of and, and, but my, my main point there is that we did all of those, uh, we created all, all of that, all those derivatives, I think is a good word, because if you look at fractional reserve banking, you know, it's kind of a derivative in the sense that you're not really lending out the money that, that you're storing, you're creating additional IOUs, right? So if, uh, it, but we did all of this while on the gold standard. So just if we were on a Bitcoin standard, how would that have changed? And um, I don't know that it would have. I understand all the arguments that uh, Bitcoin may wipe out the entire banking system because it's far more decentralized in the sense that with gold, you would need a uh, preferably someplace to store it because it's kind of cumbersome. If you had $50 million worth of gold, you couldn't just carry it around in your back pocket. So it makes sense to store it somewhere. And then that's how you kind of uh, transition or evolve into the, the, the whole um, timeline that I outlined before. 
But uh, with Bitcoin, I get it. You know, you can keep that $50 million on a thumb drive in your back pocket and you can take it across borders. But my point is, regardless, at some point, you'd most likely have fiduciaries because people would want to return on their Bitcoin. And whether you lent it out yourself, uh, your actual Bitcoin through smart contracts or whatever, you had a, a centralized entity, call it a private equity fund or an angel investment fund do it, you, you still kind of get to the same point. And then I argued that even if we started with a, a full reserve system, because most of the, the hardcore Bitcoiners, and, and I would be right there with them, you know, the, 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 the problems really start to arise when you go into fractional reserve banking. That, that's where you really have to start doing a cost benefit analysis because there could be some good, there could be some benefits, but there's definitely some costs involved there. So um, that's, that's what kind of gets us there. But even with full reserve banking with uh, Bitcoin or a full reserve system, I think, and even if it was totally decentralized, I think once we have a war or once we have a natural disaster or once we have something like that, there's going to be such a, a demand for more supply of Bitcoin in lending because you got to think this through. So let's say we have a natural disaster or let's say we have COVID. I mean, that's a fantastic example, right? So all the people that own Bitcoin uh, and let's say that Bitcoin is, is, is the global money. There's nothing else that exists. It's just Bitcoin. That's the reserve asset. That's the payment system. It's all in one. Well, people aren't going to want to lend that out. They're, they're going to want to hoard it because they know that we're going to have a severe economic recession, if not a global depression. So then the Keynesians would come in and say, oh, well, this Bitcoin thing, it's, it's not going to work. We need, for the greater good, we need people to lend out their, their Bitcoin. And no one's going to want to do it. So then what do they do? They create some sort of system that's a derivative of the outstanding Bitcoin. And like with any government program, uh, you know, what was it that Friedman said? The, um, you know, the most, uh, you know, any temporary uh, government program is always permanent or something to that effect. Mm. And there's uh, no such thing as a temporary government program. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, once yeah. you let the cat out of the bag, you're never going to put it back in. So that that's my kind of the conclusion I came to is that even if you have perfect money, Perfect money is owned by imperfect creatures in an imperfect world. Therefore, we can't expect perfect money to perform perfectly. And uh, th that that's kind of my position on it. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot to break down there. I've, I've got a lot of questions for you from that. So, so your main issue with having a Bitcoin-based system where everybody's using Bitcoin is that we no longer have essentially the money printer. Is that is that the issue? Well, you'd take away the ability for fractional reserve banking. Well, you, you wouldn't, though. You wouldn't. You wouldn't, though. No, you wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't. But that would be most of the hardcore Bitcoiners' stance. They, they would not want fractional reserve banking because they, they know that that just takes us right down the path of where we are today. And to be clear, I think going to a, a Bitcoin standard would be very interesting. And I, I would definitely uh, favor it compared to other options, especially a fiat, right? Um, but, and I do think that it would, you'd go through a, a wicked, wicked deflationary cycle. And then, but after that, after you kind of clear out all the malinvestments and 
everything that happened as a result of, of the fiat system, you would have a, a time frame where you have very, very solid economic growth. So I'm not saying that it, that it wouldn't work. I'm just saying that it may work very well in the next 20, 30 years. But in the next 100 years, I think we, we'd be pretty much at the same point where we're at right now. And, and you may take the position of Keynes and that, well, in 100 years, we're all dead. So who cares? And, and that's valid. But when I was going through this on Twitter and on my video, it, it's, it's really a thought experiment to try to ask myself the question, is Bitcoin a permanent panacea? And that's when well, nothing's I, permanent. Like well, as you said nothing. I mean, yeah, nothing's well, guaranteed. There might be a... Bitcoin. <laughs> well, no, I mean, some of the guys I speak to don't. They would say, you know, it could be, you know, it could be you know, something that lasts for 50, 100, who, who knows how many years. But I, I don't think, not everyone thinks it's permanent. But at the same time, I think we go through these evolutionary stages, right? And one of the evolutionary stages right now is that perhaps we are moving away from fiat currencies to a you know, fixed limit currency such as Bitcoin. And maybe that's a transition that takes, could be multiple decades. But perhaps we are going to that because of the ills of of the fiat system. I mean, because I, I, it's funny. I, I, I watched your, um, I went on your YouTube, watched your first video. And um, the first thing you say, this channel is about how to protect your wealth in a world uh, world where are out of control governments and central banks. And yeah. I was like, that sounds like what a Bitcoiner would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, philosophically, I, I'm in line with everything. And I'm in line, and there are 99% of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoiners, I think, are pretty much in line with, with my whole way of thinking um, as, as the gold guys or gold gals, you know. But it's just there, there's a 1% group out there that are just kind of absolutists that uh, Bitcoin is going to solve all of our global economic and monetary problems now and forever. And uh, those are the people that uh, I would slightly disagree with. Well, I, I probably would as well, because I don't think you, the one thing you don't change is human nature. Greed. Correct. That, exactly. Uh, Okay, but that—that's—I I don't think that's the biggest issue. If that's like the one percent, if you—if you have ninety-nine percent conviction, what 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 were, can, you, can you remember the other questions you put out there? Um, well, I mean, one thing that I was trying to figure out is, you know, if you can't, uh, I, you know, I was really thinking through how does it work if the government, if Bitcoin was the only form of money mm -hmm. on the entire planet then my first line of thinking is, is how does that transition work? And, um, and I yeah. know that most of, of the, the Bitcoiners would say, well, it's kind of this Trojan horse type of effect where it, it goes into local economies and they start to use it just, just gradually because it's a superior form of payment or maybe once, it get, once the technology gets to that point, obviously, you know, maybe they would argue it's a superior uh, reserve asset. But maybe at some point when the technology catches up, it's a superior form of payment for the billions and billions of transactions that occur daily. And so once you get to that point, then the, the free market takes over and people just start to use it on their own. Problem there is that once you gradually transition, it, it, it's, you couldn't just do that overnight um, it, it, because you know, if you just went to it overnight, then what would a country do that had absolutely no Bitcoin whatsoever? Let's say they had 10 Bitcoin. They'd have to 
break their payments down to you know just a, a very very small level in order to facilitate their their daily trade right mm -hmm. and then you start analyzing things that take you back to the gold standard and uh someone in adam smith and one of his uh colleagues or one of his buddies his name is david hume and david hume came up with a theory that was called a, a price species flow model and basically what that was in, in that case that i just outlined uh, the goods of that country that only had 10 Bitcoin to begin with relative to countries that had a lot of Bitcoin or another way to say that is a, 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 an increased money supply is their goods and services would be cheaper. Therefore, they would have a, a big advantage in the export market. So they would most likely export more goods and services to the countries that had an increased supply of Bitcoin. And then those Bitcoins would move into that country and then their prices would increase because their money supply increases. And then that you'd have kind of this equilibrium or balancing act. Um, and that would work. But it, th that transition, I don't know if in today's day and age that, um, you know, where we like to avoid pain or any economic point pain at any cost, that there would be an appetite for that. Now, maybe there would. Maybe there would, and maybe it would happen just gradually over time. But that points out another thing that, that Bitcoiners uh, tend to miss is they think that, well, there's a set supply of Bitcoin, 21 million, and therefore we'll never, ever again have price inflation. <laughs> but that's not true, because although there may be set a, a set amount globally, there's not a set amount in your local area where you're buying your goods and services. It just goes right back to the... The, the price species flow method that uh, that Hume outlined, and so what again? Uh, if you're exporting more goods, let's let's say you're in that country that had ten bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Well, you're exporting more goods the next year. Let's say you have twenty bitcoin. Okay, well then the the cost you'd have more money supply in bitcoin, and the cost of goods and services would increase. So you still don't get away from now. It, it is far superior. Because you're you're not going to have like we've had since 1913, where you have just a, a gradual depreciation of the unit of exchange, where now it's you know what 99 or 95 percent lower than it was in 1913 when we uh, set up the Fed. So it is superior, but again, it's not a panacea. It, it's not to say that we would we would just have for the next hundred years every year a two percent deflation in the cost of goods and services throughout the globe that, that's not how it would work yeah so it sounds to me it's not like it's not like you don't disagree that it could happen it's more like it sounds to me more like you're curious about what are the implications what are the consequences of this happening because correct i'm taking yeah i'm taking it, it well I, I shouldn't say this definitively but from what i can see on twitter and my, my twitter feed I'm, I'm taking it quite a few uh steps further yeah than uh, most of the people that are uh responding by setting up memes to where they're uh, chopping off my head or something like that. <laughs> are you having fun being poor? <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. yeah. Do you know what? The memes are fun, though, actually. I think the memes shouldn't be ever be taken too serious because they are they are good fun. And it's just, um, you know, when you're sat there all day being miserable, shouting at each other, they're a bit of fun. No, because I, I find this interesting because this is what I'm curious about. It's not whether it can happen. You know, I, I don't know. It's how it happens and what are the consequences so firstly, yeah, if Bitcoin gets to 
uh, I did an interview with Gary V recently, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was chatting to him and, and I wasn't prepared for it. He actually threw a curveball at me. He said, well, what happens when, you know, Putin and, and the, the um, and oh, I can remember the guy from Brazil and India and, you know, all these more kind of authoritarian countries turn around and say, you can't use Bitcoin. And if you do, you go to jail. Kind of what happens in, in that scenario? Now, I think places like the UK, the US have got, fair amount of regulatory protection i don't think they'll ban it i think it could be highly regulated but i don't think they're going to ban it but he did talk about those scenarios so in my head i'm like well do we end up in a world where we have two different currencies we have you know we have fiat currencies from states that have banned it and you know countries like the us who who haven't does bitcoin have this gravity that draws people into it and therefore what kind of what's the scenario then for the dollar and one of the things i wonder is like how is if there is a transition, how bloody is that transition? I'm not sure if you've read any of the work by Parker Lewis, but I I definitely send you an article of his called Gradually Then Suddenly. And the idea being that like this is gradual growth in Bitcoin, then suddenly it just hits us. But what 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 is the what sorry, what are the externalities for that? What what happens to the economy? What happens to businesses if you've been transacting in one currency and now I've got another? Or like you say, or people who don't have any, could you see a massive economic shock? You know, is this oh, one of these is these one of these tr- these massive transitional periods in the history of humans? And I'm reading the Sovereign Individual book at the moment. We've gone through the agricultural revolution, then the industrial revolution, mm. and now the information revolution. Is it just a natural occurrence, but it's going to be bloody and you know, dangerous and it's going to change society? I don't know the answers, but I'm really intrigued to, if it does happen, what these are as well. Well, that's a free market. Yeah. I mean, that Schumpeter is creative destruction. And that's is something that we should welcome. And uh, I think we should we should want to have a free market of money. And uh, you know, having the government have a monopoly, I, I don't think is is a good idea. And so I, I would welcome that. But yeah, there, there's going to be some winners and losers, and you don't know how it it all plays out because there's just so many variables. I mean, I think you know the Bitcoiners would say that, or, or the the real uh, diehards. Would say that number one you can't ban it which okay i guess that's kind of true in the sense that you can't literally because it's computer code and you can't just you know prevent people from doing but what you can do is you can say okay if you get caught using it 50 years in jail and you could do that and so then you have to ask yourself okay well let's say you've got people in the united states as an example or the uk and all of a sudden they come out with this uh 10 or 25 years in jail if you get caught using Bitcoin, um, sure, a lot of the people would move, and that's the the Bitcoiners, uh, you know, that's their um, salute, or that's their answer. Is a lot a lot of these people would move to a country that welcomed Bitcoin, and then that country's economy would grow and expand, and all the other countries would see that, and they'd be like, okay, we need to rethink our Bitcoin strategy because it's working so well in company X Y Z or country X Y Z that that opened their arms and adopted it. And okay, I, I see that, but how many people that uh, have a wife and kids, and their kids go to private schools, and they're in uh, sixth and seventh grade, and all their uh, grandparents and family members live around them are going to, you know, just pick up and and move to uh, Colombia or Argentina or something like that? And the example that I use is Act Twenty and Twenty Two in Puerto Rico. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but right now 
an American can go to Puerto Rico and move their residency, which is very, very simple. And you mm -hmm. just spend six months a year, basically, in, uh, in Puerto Rico, and you can take your tax rate from, call it, 40% down to zero and a, at a max 4%, and you don't have to pay capital gains. So think about the cost savings there, but yet how many people are actually doing it? <laughs> Too much friction. So, so, right. So how many people would actually move? I'm, I'm sure there would be some, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know uh, if it would be 100%. And then you think through, okay, so you've got this group of people that go to several countries that are uh, transacting in Bitcoin. And that's their only uh, currency. That's their uh, main store of, of value, the reserve asset. And, okay, so how are they trading with the countries that are that, that banned Bitcoin? So are they, um, you know, how, how does that really work? Are they taking in fiat? Uh, they have to create their own uh, paper currency that's backed by Bitcoin and send that? And how does that not lead to a fractional reserve system? And if you get to a fractional reserve system, then how does that not take us down the path that we have been on with the gold standard? Granted, though, it would be far more decentralized. So it's 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 definitely uh, it's a very messy process. Uh, I'm not saying that it's something that that would not be beneficial, and I'd like to see it play out. I'd like to see the free market take charge. But again, my point is is that it is not a panacea, and it's not something that a lot of people on Twitter assume that if we just went to a Bitcoin standard overnight, that all of our economic problems would be solved. Uh, we would it would cure cancer. Uh, we would move on to this <laughs> utopian society where uh, we're all rich and it eradicates poverty, and we have this uh, you know the, the birds are chirping and the sun is shining. Um, I don't. I don't know if, if if we have that. Although there may be a significant improvement. So, what what is your investment thesis? If you're long Bitcoin, is it is it just digital gold for you? Is it just a scarce asset? No, it's not digital gold because I see gold as insurance, and I don't see Bitcoin as insurance. I just see Bitcoin as a very good speculation, and I divide my portfolio into something I call ten eighty ten. So ten percent will be allocated to insurance for me to physical gold. Uh, 80% would be allocated to what I call investments, quote unquote. And I define an investment as something that has to pay me to own it. So a dividend paying stock, a rental property, and then 10% allocated to a speculation where I think there's significant asymmetry to the upside. So Bitcoin is perfect for that. Uh, back in March, I, I bought a few more uh, speculative assets. I bought uranium. Uh, and that's something that doesn't really pay me to own it, but I, I saw some good uh, upside there. Uh, I think the miners, the, the gold miners, I would categorize them as a speculative asset. And um, so that's kind of how I, I, I fit the Bitcoin into the portfolio. But for me, gold and Bitcoin are not competing asset classes at all. They complement one another. Okay, interesting. We should get into that. So, but are you speculating on the faith of other people rather than your own faith in Bitcoin? Well, I don't know that I have a, a faith in, in anything. I, I, I try to look at history okay. and I try to look at uh, just probabilities and then just try to allocate my portfolio accordingly mm. based on the structure that I think works best for my personality type. Um, I, I try to eliminate uh, being married 
to any belief system when I'm investing. And um, I like to try to unplug as, as much emotion and bias as I can. And, and that's one thing where I'm uh, a little hesitant with the individuals on Twitter, where I say, I, I think we should be invested, but I don't think we should be emotionally invested. And that, that's the big uh, difference there. Yeah, I do, I do think sometimes some of the emotionally invested louder voices tend, I don't think they're representative of everyone. Um, I think they are a minority and that's not for me to say they're right or wrong. And I think some of that emotional investment is, you know, I think you can get emotionally invested in something because you own it and you have a bias and you want the price to go up and you want to, you, you know, you want to realize gains. Yeah. But, but I think for, I think for the certain group of people, uh, whether they're, you know, it could be libertarians, it could be people who are just pissed off with the world right now, who just see this as something a little bit rebel, a little bit anti-state, anti-government, the fact that you can own something and spend and send it without the, the government stopping you. And also they've been sold an idea that maybe uh, there is a meme, Bitcoin fixes this. So I think some people have been sold <clears throat> that kind of idea. And I, I, I guess you get people who are emotional around investments financially but i think that some people are also emotional around this ideologically 100 percent, and that yeah. goes back to uh twitter and an article that i posted and, and referenced from this uh journalist not an economist but a journalist who had a hypothesis that in the west we have gradually moved away from religion for many decades and he was not arguing whether that's good or bad it, it is what it is but uh, he was arguing that as human beings, we need some something in our life that gives us meaning. And uh, he thinks we may have filled that void with things like politics, which is why you see in the United States uh, political issues being so divisive. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, maybe maybe Bitcoin as, as filling that void of religion for some people. And I, and just to be fair, I think gold may be filling that void uh, for some people and uh, maybe even libertarianism. So it, again, I think it's, we just always need to look in the mirror and, and understand that as human beings, we have these weaknesses, be cognizant of them and, and make sure that we're just uh, checking ourselves to, to ensure that we're, um, that, that we're not making those those mistakes that we're prone to. Okay, I, I still don't fully understand what your your investment thesis is. Okay, so it's it's a speculative investment for you, but what what is it about Bitcoin that you like? Where, why do you think it has a value? Yeah, so uh, scarcity. You've got a, a scarce asset which has a lot of utility for cross border payments. Okay, and uh, to carry your wealth in your back pocket. I mean, that, that's first and foremost. And then if you do have uh, governments become more and more draconian, which I think they will, uh, then that adds a, a, a much um, greater argument to have some sort of Bitcoin. I mean, as an example, I, I uh, own some uh, watches that uh, are rather high value. And I own them because I know that at a moment's notice that uh, I can just put them in my bag and I can go to anywhere, South America, I could go to Europe, I could go to Asia, and I, I've got that purchasing power, significant purchasing power, just right in my carry bag, and I don't have to announce it or anything. 
And I, I think Bitcoin serves that type of purpose in addition to several others. I'm just giving you one example of why I think more and more people will be interested in Bitcoin. You see what's happened in Venezuela or you see what happens in countries where they have a lot of capital controls. Uh, Bitcoin, for obvious reasons, becomes very, very popular. And so I think that in the future, we're going in the developed world and other economies, we're going to have more capital controls. We're not going to have less capital controls. And I think that that is a, a, a tailwind for Bitcoin in an asset that's, that's obviously scarce. So you, you see, for, for the, the interim, from, from where it is now to 100,000, I mean, I see a direct path. It makes a lot of sense. But once it gets to the point where people are using it as a global money, and uh, then I, I start to see some areas where it could run into a few issues. It's not to say that it won't power through and get over those speed bumps, but uh, I, I'm very, I can definitely see a path. Now, now that said, in the short term, I'm not as bullish as I am over the long term. So the reason for that is because whenever I see a lot of people, a lot of retail, really super excited about an investment, I get very hesitant. Like I like buying things that everyone hates. Yeah, as, as an example, I, I, I went out the other night um, and I was with a, a group of young people uh, along with some friends. And so I was talking to these young people about investment and these are college students, right? Mm -hmm. And every single one of them was staying up till like four o'clock in the morning trading Bitcoin. And that's all they were talking about is Bitcoin. I had my, my housekeeper come over, <clears throat> excuse me, the other day. And uh, she asked me if she should start buying Bitcoin. See, so you told whenever, you I, whenever I see that, I'm, I, I, again, I'm, I'm long-term, I'm very bullish, but short-term, I get a little hesitant. I, I like owning things that everyone hates, they despise. I like owning things where if you told someone in the general population that you were buying this, they tell you you are absolutely crazy or they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. But there are still a lot of people that hate Bitcoin as well, right? So you've kind of, I guess, in the trying to look at your echo chamber of Twitter, I imagine what's happened is because you're in that macro world, the Bitcoin stuff has started to leak in a bit. So you're seeing it a bit more and a little bit more. My housekeeper and my housekeeper is a 65 year old Hispanic gal that, that barely speaks English. Yeah, no, no. What I'm saying is, I'm saying it started to to leak into your world though a little bit more. You started to become a kind of a bit more exposed to Bitcoin, and and therefore you see macro people and maybe seeing some positives. There are a lot of people who are still very negative about it as well. You know, equally if you're a housekeeper, there might be another housekeeper who just thinks it's nonsense. I guess though, sometimes like retail people, when they feel that they're missing out, they get sucked in. We had this in 2017. There was a period of yeah, and that's what I'm weeks. saying. Just short term, just short term. I'm a little little hesitant. I mean, it, it, contrast that to something else I bought in uh, March, which was coal. Okay. My housekeeper's not coming to me asking me if she should buy coal, or there's no cyber hornets on Twitter that will attack you if you say something negative about coal. See, that's what I like. I, I like coal Twitter. I'm sorry. There's no cold Twitter. Right, right, right. <laughs> See, th those are the, the investments I like. It just, you know, because probably the main reason of that 
is my favorite investor is Jim Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I just, why do you like him? I'm sorry. Why do you like him? Several different reasons. Philosophically, I'm aligned with pretty much everything he, he, he talks about in his belief system. I've had the opportunity to interview him personally. And he's such a great storyteller. And he's had the opportunity to travel the world and take all these adventures. And it's very similar to how I lived my life since I retired in 2012. And so, it, it, and, and probably the most, uh, the, the biggest reason is because my, my father passed away in 2005. And he was much, much, he was very, very uh, old when I was uh, born. So he, he passed away at the ripe old age of 92. But um, I mean, Jim Rogers reminds me of my father. Every single time I see Jim Rogers or hear him speak, I, I see my father. And it, it, it brings back such great memories. And so all those things combined is why he's my favorite. When I first started studying investing in macro, I really dove into his content. And I remember reading about him in the Market Wizards books by Jack Schwager when he was doing those interviews in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I just, it's really resonated. So anyway, you know, Jim likes going into countries and, and buying assets that most people wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. I mean, he goes in and he's bullish North Korea, for heaven's sakes. You know, he was bullish in Myanmar way back, probably. 10 years ago, he was bullish on Myanmar. I mean, he's been bullish in Zimbabwe. He's been bullish Tanzania. He's now bullish Venezuela uh, to a certain degree. So that's that's what I like to do. And, and again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that's the right way to invest. Mm. Not at all. I'm just saying that that's the way that resonates with me. And that's how I feel most comfortable investing or, or allocating uh, assets, allocating resources. And um, I think it goes back to the point where I think for most people to make money over the long term, you've got to first and foremost understand your strengths and weaknesses. You have to understand how prone to emotion you are naturally. And then you have to set up your portfolio accordingly. I think most people get hyper, hyper focused on what to buy and what not to buy. And they totally ignore portfolio construction. And I think that they would be better served taking 90% of their time and energy and allocating it to portfolio construction compared to maybe 10% where they actually uh, look at the the asset. For most people, 99.9% of their energy goes into picking the asset and zero, you know, maybe 0.1% goes into portfolio construction and understanding how you respond to emotion. You know, when are you going to buy? When are you going to sell? How are you going to feel if Bitcoin goes down by 100% or excuse me, by 50% in a pullback? And then if you're, if you're someone that's going to lose sleep over it, well, then you should have Bitcoin as a smaller percentage of your portfolio. Next up, I talk to George more about Bitcoin and his thoughts on Bitcoin strengths and weaknesses. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's talk about sportsbet.io. Have you checked them out yet? They are the best place for online gaming. They're the best because they accept Bitcoin. They love Bitcoin. This company does everything it can to promote Bitcoin. I've been out to Estonia. I've hung out with the team. I've hung out with the CEO. They have so much conviction behind Bitcoin. So much so that they sponsored a Premier League football club, Southampton SC, who are having a great season, by the way. And they put a Bitcoin logo on the front of their shirt. Maybe that's a bullish sign. 
Now, with Sportsbet, you have every market you could possibly be interested in, from the Premier League to US sports. And for new customers, they always have a wide range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, and that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io forward slash promotions. All right, let's move on to Casa. You know you need to check out Casa, right? Bitcoin has been having this unbelievable run this year so far. Some of you may have started with a small amount of Bitcoin and might be sitting on quite a hefty stack. So it's time to really think about your Bitcoin security. I did it six months ago. I reached out to the CEO, Nick Newman. I was like, come on, man, help me get this shit sorted. My security is all over the place. And I signed up and I became a Casa customer. And now I'm protected from hackers, my own stupid mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And Casa has a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 or 5 multi-sig. That is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. That includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time than right now to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly, today, we're going to take a look at Otis. Otis is an investment platform that makes it possible for anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets. From contemporary art to rare collectibles, sports cars, memorabilia, sneakers, comics, and so much more. And here's how it works. You download the app and sign up for free. New cultural assets are then dropped in the app weekly for you to buy shares in. You can also buy shares of past drops from other Otis members. You can then earn a potential return if Otis sells the underlying asset for more than the price the item was dropped at, or by selling your shares to Otis members on Otis's trading platform. I signed up and checked out their cool sneaker investments, like the 1985 Air Jordan 1 collection, but I'm also a lover of modern art, so it's great to see some Banksy up there too. Right now, Otis is offering a free investment share to listeners of my show. All you have to do is head over to withotis.com forward slash WBD and sign up to get your first share for free when you fund your account. That is at withotis.com forward slash WBD. It sounds like your investment strategy is obviously quite sophisticated, but also like I know you're 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 big on property, right? Um, but you've got to have a you know, you've got to have capital to begin with to be able to invest in property. I know in the UK, so for example, you, you will need a deposit. You have to consider a higher capital gains tax if you ever want to sell it. Um, I think to scale property investment, so it delivers a, a solid long-term income, I think you need quite a bit of capital. And I think perhaps, you know, I've, I've, got, um, I've got two kids, my son's 16, and you know, he wants to go to university. I'm thinking, right, the amount of debt he might collect there and then once he leaves, you know, if he wants to buy a house, like I know how the houses are priced, even around here where I live. I'm not even in London. Now, I think for some people, maybe they're thinking this is a, Bitcoin is a chance. It's, a, it's quite an easy investment. It's quite a simple one. And maybe it resonates more with a kind of a, a future vision of the world that they're seeing. And, and it just kind of reduces a lot of the friction for investing for them. I, I could imagine trying to build a portfolio similar to yours is you know, quite capital intensive. Am I wrong? I mean, Bitcoin's what? Uh, 17, 18,000? I mean, you need quite a bit. <laughs> well, no, but, but you don't. You, do, you don't really because, you know, if Bitcoin went from here, say, and did another 20x, it's just a 20x of your initial investment. So even if somebody puts in $5,000, that could be $100,000. That could be 
you know it's life-changing money but if you wanted to if you want to do the same with property you might not even be able to get on the property ladder with that right but, but let's do money. pros and cons but let's do yeah. pros and cons so 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 right let's just say you buy one bitcoin so yeah. and let's just say that's roughly 20 grand so right now you could buy a, a rental property in the united states uh for the 20 grand down payment a, a very solid rental property Mm -hmm. and you'd be cash flow positive and you'd have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So you're being paid to short the dollar. You're being paid to short fiat. But it's uh, uh, but it, nothing's guaranteed, of course. But the probability of that coming to fruition and that working out is far, 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 far greater than the probability of Bitcoin going to, let's say, 100,000, right? And I'm not saying that Bitcoin won't. But uh, let's say the probability of that happening is 80%, where the probability of your little rental property uh, paying you a positive cash flow for the next 10 years while you're shorting the dollar through that 30-year fixed rate mortgage is probably 95%. Well, what would the... So it's not, a, a, it, again, you're, you're kind of comparing two things that I don't think are, are, are I think are apples and oranges because one's in... Uh, asymmetrical speculation and one is just an investment where uh, you know what it's going to produce that the, 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 the delta there is how much you're going to make from being able to pay back your mortgage with depreciated dollars and that could be a yeah. significant significant transfer of wealth from the lender to the borrower um, you you might even make as much on that as you make on on Bitcoin. See, see that's another thing to think through. It's like in a world where let's just use dollars. In a world where Bitcoin goes to a hundred thousand, or in a world where Bitcoin goes to a million, where is the dollar in that world relative to other goods and services? You see how much goods and services or CPI price inflation. Would we have experienced in in a world or in a U.S. where Bitcoin was a quarter million a coin, right? Well, and then most most people do those mortgage. Most people do those predictions. Tend to do it based on uh, current buying power of the dollar. So they say when it goes to a the prediction will go into a million dollars. They do it based on you know market cap capitalization based on the current purchasing power. I mean, if you've got you know, inflation as well. I mean, I, I, you know, who who knows? But I think my point was, it's kind of opportunity cost for investors. Like, if you had twenty thousand, like a lot of people don't even have twenty thousand dollars to invest. But just say they did, yeah, per perhaps it, perhaps it, that is the problem, George. People just don't. Yeah, have you that could argue if it's an opportunity cost. You're assuming that it's definitely going to go up. So why wouldn't you just take a hundred percent of what you own? Why wouldn't you max out all your credit cards and just buy Bitcoin? Well, do you know what I did today? It's going to kind of. Uh, I, mean, I wasn't even going to admit this. Um, I took out, <laughs> so I'm pretty long Bitcoin. And when the price dipped, I, I did an interview yesterday about what uh, the micro strategy, what uh, Michael Saylor did, which is essentially a speculative attack where he's borrowed money from uh, the bank. Uh, sorry, for, sorry, from investors. And he's going to take another $550 million position in Bitcoin. And, you know, he has to pay, what, an interest rate of 0.75%. Now, I can't get access to that. I was like, right, you know what? I'm going to do the same. So I went straight onto my bank. I was like, what can I get instantly? I can borrow £35,000 instantly and at 7.9%. So in six years, I have to pay back 43000 And I was like, right, I can buy 2.55 Bitcoin for that. 
well, that 2.55 Bitcoin in six years be worth more than 43,000 pounds? I was like, almost certainly. So I just did it more as my own little test. Um, and that's, I guess that's my way of shorting the pound. But you're not getting paid for it. No, I'm not getting paid for it, but I've got an income. I've already and, got and, an income. And, and there's, there's, there's far more certainty with a rental property. Uh, or I shouldn't say certainty. Uh, the probabilities are, are far greater that that rental property will be worth in goods and services terms what it's worth today in 10 years uh, than Bitcoin. Although I would argue again that Bitcoin, the probability is good that it increases significantly. But I think that it, you got to go back to Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the number one rule in investing? Don't lose money. And number two and three, don't forget number one. <laughs> and, we're, we're, uh, we're talking about risk appetite now then, really, aren't we? Because I would say, therefore, pr property investments, low risk. I only own one property. And, and you know, between you and I, George, just, like if Bitcoin went to 100,000, I might sell a bit of Bitcoin and buy a couple of properties and have a bit of a mixed portfolio. But at the same time, like, I imagine you're kind of like, you have a lower risk appetite than I do. I have quite a high risk appetite. And I quite like the idea of, with Bitcoin, the moonshot. I do like that idea. Yeah, but th that's why, it, it, for me, it, it's just a part of the portfolio. Yeah. It goes back to portfolio construction. I don't know. I mean, you're talking to someone that went almost all in in real estate in the United States in 2012. Uh, you're talking to another person that levered mm -hmm. up his uh, properties in the United States to buy property in Medellin, Colombia, the home of Pablo Escobar, in 2015. So I don't know that it's I have a that I have a low tolerance for what most people would consider high risk plays. It's just I always go back to the basics, and and I believe that over the long run, that I will make more money if my number one goal is don't lose any. And uh, I think that's the the irony, and again, it goes back to human nature that people who just start with the priority of not losing money over the long run will end up making more money than people who go out and uh, you know just try to swing for the fences with every single um, investment so is that the one of the biggest kind of mistakes you see then people are essentially going for moonshots and risking over leveraging themselves investing in things they don't really understand it is but it's not just with bitcoin I want to yeah. be. I want to be very, very clear. I want to be fair. I, I don't just see that in Bitcoin. I see it in gold as well. I see it in silver. I see uh, people that comment on my uh, videos that uh, they're they're the exact same thing that you just uh, talked about with uh, you know your credit card. They're doing the same thing with gold. So I, I, personally, I would <laughs> I wouldn't do that with any asset, not just uh, not just Bitcoin. Um, because for the reasons we were talking about. Do, do you not think, though, also, have you not got a slightly bigger concern right now with the state of borrowing, you know, with the pandemic, how much, say, the US government's borrowed, how much the UK government's borrowed? You know, was it something like, is it something like 80% of the money that's been borrowed has been in the last year, printed trillions at a time? Well, I can give you... I yeah, I can't give you stats on the UK, but I can definitely give you stats on the United States. So this year in the United States, our, our deficit will be right around $5 trillion. And to put that into perspective, the United States government accumulated about $5 trillion in debt 
from 1776 to 1996. Wow. So first 220 years of uh, the existence of the United States, we racked up the same amount of debt as we will just this year. And so those are just staggering figures. And that's another tailwind <laughs> for, mm. for Bitcoin and for gold, anything that's, uh, that's of limited supply. Does that stuff worry you, though? Because my worry is just holding pounds in the bank. I mean, the other day, I can't remember, it's like Wednesday, I woke up and the purchasing power of the pound had dropped by like another 1.16% due to the Brexit negotiations. I was just thinking, I, I, you know, my business does okay. I've got okay savings. And I was just thinking, I don't want to be holding these pounds. Yeah, that gets that's a very nuanced question because yeah. it depends on what you're wanting to buy longer term with those currency units. Uh, because inflation or deflation, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So let me give you an example of the 1970s in the United States. We had consumer price inflation. Most people remember that was a time of stagflation, so high consumer prices, higher and higher consumer prices, and high unemployment. So most people would assume that in that type of environment, assets increased in value because the nominal price went up. But we look at 72 to 74, and we had a huge bear market in the S&P 500. It went down by almost 50% in nominal terms. When you adjust for inflation, it went down by more than that. So my point is you can have um, consumer prices going up and assets go down. You can have assets go up and consumer prices stay the same. You can have uh, consumer prices go up while at the same time relative to other currencies. It's uh, going up or down in value. So my point is if, if you're someone who wants to buy let's say stocks or um, you know, with that, that, that money, then you might wanna keep some, some dry powder there uh, based on what you think the probabilities are of the, the, the stock, whatever stocks you wanna buy coming down in value, therefore your currency uh, gaining purchasing power. And that's another reason why I like gold because gold isn't as volatile. And I understand that Bitcoin may get to a point where it's uh, maturing so it may not be uh, volatile, it may be, have the same volatility as gold or something similar to it. But if you've got gold, um, you, you've got, you're kind of maintaining your purchasing power to a certain degree. And if you got a little bit of cash, I think that's prudent right now just to take advantage of any significant downturn we have in the market. You know, as an example, going back to, to March of, of this year, I had a decent amount of, of cash just on the sidelines. And although I didn't want to have the cash, because to your point, mm. I'm, I'm losing purchasing power, at least two or 3%. That's if you believe the CPI every single year. And that compounds after 10 years. That's a big number. Um, but I was still okay because there you have to, it's a cost benefit analysis. So you have a cost of holding the cash in the sense that you're losing purchasing power by call it two or 3% per annum. But you have a benefit if you think that stocks are in a bubble and you want to, and you think there's a 75% chance that they correct, but you've got to weigh the, that the cost benefit there and determine how much you think is, is smart to keep on the sideline and in what form. And, uh, you know, some people do that in Bitcoin. Okay. For, for me, I don't see that as, as a good move because it's just, it's going up and down and up and down so much. And if I wouldn't have had the cash that I could have just instantly put into play, 
back in March, you know, I wouldn't have been able to buy a lot of things very, very uh, cheap or as cheap as I, I was able to end up purchasing them. Yeah, so I, I think the big difference is, I do think it's that uh, r- different type of risk appetite. Yes, you you have um, an appetite for risk based on your investments, like you said, in 2012 and, and in Colombia. I think someone like myself, a bit like Michael Saylor, this is kind of like a moonshot still. It's still a moonshot. This is a, if if Bitcoin does, continues to perform as it, as it has done over the next decade, yes, I might not have something like a property that delivers an income stream back, um, but it might be something that delivers life-changing money. And I think some people like that kind of risk and they, they're, they're interested in that. The other thing is, you know, with what you're doing, it's quite sophisticated. I imagine... It's a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work to manage those investments. A lot of work to, you know, constantly looking at the market. So I'm like, I don't, I don't have the time, and I don't even understand it. For me, it's quite simple. It's like I buy and I hold Bitcoin, and every year I just kind of track it. And do I have the same conviction? If it, if if, if I do, do I invest more, or do I take some out? And you know, I'm four years in now, and I have pretty high conviction. But I just think perhaps it's just different investments for different folks. Yeah, and it also depends on your your personal cash flow and how uh, secure you are in your business or your job. And if you're making $500,000 a year and you're very confident that even in a recession or an economic depression that you're still going to be making that $500,000 a year, you know, why not take a, a flyer on on Bitcoin or even a gold mine or something speculative yeah. like that? Uh, it can make sense. Uh, than for others that might not have that cash flow. Maybe they inherit $100,000 uh, from their grandparents and they're they're making $30,000 a year, barely making ends meet. Maybe it's it's not as good of an idea. It's, it's all kind of an individual uh, decision. But, uh, you know, the, 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 just, I think people should be very cautious that they're investing and they're not gambling. And uh, for each person that they might define that a little bit different, but I think it starts <laughs> by actually defining what that means for you and, and make sure that you're not falling on the side of, of gambling because if it is gambling, then it's probably more efficient just to go down to the local casino and just put it all on black. Mm, I would disagree with that, but I understand the sentiment. I, I would rather have my, I, I think it's just a certain amount of a gamble involved in like when there's very low risk, it's not much of a gamble with property because you're owning an asset, right? You you have a thing. It's similar with gold. You have a thing. You know, when you're investing in, I think I've never really done stocks and shares, but with that, you're at the risk of the company. If the company, something goes wrong with the company and Bitcoin, you're, you're at the risk of it, you know, catastrophic bug or a government uh, stopping it. But these are the threats we've heard for 12 years now. And it's a lot stronger these days. It's a risky investment. I guess, like you say, it depends how you define gamble, but I, I certainly think it's a better bet than. But you know, I want to be clear. Either. I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm not saying that Bitcoin is buying Bitcoin is like going down and playing roulette. Yeah, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying for some people it may be if you're that individual that's uh, you know got thirty thousand dollars a year and you you could lose your job because of COVID or what have you. And you get that hundred thousand inheritance, and you just buy, take every single penny and buy Bitcoin or buy gold. I mean, same thing. Mm. Uh, I think that would be just as much of a, a gamble. I, I so I, again, I think it goes back to portfolio construction. 
And if you're setting up your portfolio in a way where you have an edge long-term, then that is investing. Uh, if you are setting up your portfolio to a point where uh, you don't have an edge, then that's gambling. And see, that goes back to your, your personal, your emotional stability, because that, that guy or gal who is just making a, a, a modest salary, you know, think about how much pressure they would feel if they had 100% of their portfolio in one asset, regardless. You know, they would have that app on their phone and they'd be checking it like 10 times a day, probably 10 times an hour. And they would be going through emotional swings up and down every single time the price goes up. Or, I mean, that is, that's not investing right you, there. You're describing my life there, George. This is, this is what it's like. Yeah. hundred percent. Again, to each their own. But, but for me, that's investing is, is where I'm not looking at my phone. It, let me put it to you this way. I check my portfolio so little that I don't even remember what my password is for my brokerage account because I haven't checked it in probably, well, since March, I have no clue what it, what it is. And that, that's perfect for, I went in another example, I bought uh, shares in Cyprus in uh, this was maybe 2013, maybe it, it's when they had their bail in, remember that? Mm -hmm. And uh, their market went down by 99%. So I went in and, and, and bought some shares and I literally didn't look at it until I did a whiteboard video in 2019 and uh, I needed to pull up some data. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to check on those shares and, and see what they've done. I didn't look at them for years, years. And that's just, again, it's just my personal opinion. I think that's how... Uh, it, it's prudent to invest when you've got your portfolio set up in a way where you're completely emotionally detached. I remember again, going back to a story of Jim Rogers, where he was talking about going through Africa. And there was this country where, you know, very obscure and he was uh, bullish for whatever reason, I guess maybe he was riding his motorcycle through or one of his adventures. And he set up a brokerage account just so he could buy basically every stock on the exchange. There might have been four or five stocks. And his, his broker calls him and says, Mr. Rogers, would you like me to send you a statement once a month? And he says, absolutely not. Whatever you do, don't send me a statement. The guy says, well, how about once a year? He says, no way. He says, if you send me a statement, I'll fire you. So his broker was kind of baffled. He's like, well, why? He's like, because if you send me a statement, I'm going to be tempted to sell. <laughs> he says, right. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to know what I'll, I'll figure it out in four or five years when my investment thesis plays out. All right, George. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to check the price of Bitcoin tomorrow. I'm going to good, have a whole good, day. Good. I'm going to have a whole day <laughs> off it. Well, listen, look, I, I get it, man. I, I, you know, having spoken to you now, I understand it a bit more. It's just a different way of investing. Like you obviously got a very sophisticated uh, approach uh, which obviously has been very successful to you. So listen, I appreciate you coming on talking about it. I, I guess a good way to end, if people are listening and they're thinking, okay, George is smart. I'm going to go and check out his YouTube channel, which I'll share in the show notes. What do you? What would you leave be, like people with a bit of advice in? What, what's like a very important lesson that you've learned in investing? Hmm. Or a good well, starting I, point? Yeah, I, I think especially in today's uh, day and age, you've got to be prepared or you're going to be a victim. 
And I've, I've been saying that a lot lately because going back to our earlier conversation about these governments in the developed world just taking their debt through the roof and printing money, um, who knows whether we're going to have UBI. They're, they're distorting the free market in incredible ways that we really can't fathom with the misallocation of resources. And there's no free lunch. And at some point, the, that's, those chickens have to come home to roost. So I think the worst thing you can do right now is just kind of whistle by the graveyard and pretend that we're just going to wake up after we get, a, you know, after COVID goes away and everything's going to be back to quote unquote normal as far as economically. And I can assure you that that's not going to happen. We're going to go through some significant changes and um, there's going to be a big transfer of wealth from certain individuals to other individuals. And uh, if you're not paying attention, it's a lot like 2008, where the people that weren't paying attention just got crushed. And especially if they're in the baby boomer demographic, you can't afford to lose 50% of your net worth. You don't have enough time to make it back. Mm. And so just watch or listen to podcasts and shows like yours. Uh, if, if you listen to Macro Voices, listen to Real Vision, listen to the other Bitcoin podcasts. Or, there's a lot of uh, Bitcoin guys out there that are real, real sharp, super mm -hmm. sharp when it comes to macro, that are very sophisticated. Uh, listen to those and just absorb as much content and, as much, uh, and educate yourself as much as you can to where you're cognizant of what's going on, to where you can assess the probabilities for yourself and then take action. Some great advice there. Brilliant. Well, listen, appreciate you coming on, George. See, we're not all mean in the Bitcoin world. Some of us are friendly. And uh... Uh, no, 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 no. It was good fun going back and forth, and I actually poked a little fun at them in uh, my whiteboard yeah. video the next day. So it, it, it's all, uh, it, it's all. We're all on the same team. Where, where do you want people to go? Do, do you want them to go to your YouTube channel? Have you got a website? Where should people go to find out more about what sure, you do? They can just go to my YouTube channel. It's George Gammon. Last name is G A M M O N. Uh, they can check me out on Twitter, same uh, handle, George Gammon. My website is georgegammon.com, whichever they prefer. All right, man. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, yeah, have a nice weekend. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. What did you think of that? Was it good to hear from George? Now, listen, I know some of you won't agree with him. I know some of you will think George doesn't understand Bitcoin. He's not bullish enough. But there are different types of investors out there. Invest in different ways. George himself prefers assets that he owns that can earn him a yield. He loves property. And, you know, I own property. And maybe maybe it's right. Maybe some people need a more diverse portfolio. Maybe I do. Maybe only owning Bitcoin is high risk. Anyway, I thought it was good to get a different opinion on what Bitcoin means as an investment and what it means to the world. And I, like I say, I, look, I flip-flop myself many times with this, with my own thoughts on Bitcoin. Sometimes I challenge some of the more maximalist positions. Maybe I think some of the things are a bit more naive about Bitcoin fixing everything and taking over the world. And and then I'll do another interview, someone like the Brandon Quitton one recently. I'm like, fuck it, no, I'm all in Bitcoin. This is going to change the world. But anyway, I always think it's good to talk to other people. It's great to get George on. I really appreciate his time. If you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, all I really want is if you listen to the show, if you enjoy the show, if you can take two minutes, head over to iTunes and leave me a review. That would be awesome. We're coming to the end of another busy year. This is the third year I've been doing the show. Amazing, really. Can't believe it. 
looking forward to having a break around Christmas. I, I have a show falling on Christmas Day, so I'm going to probably have that day off. We're probably not going to have a show that day. Hope you hope you don't mind about that. But outside of that, if you do want to reach out to me, you can. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, check out Defiance, the final episode of Chaos out on Thursday. Working on my plans for 2021. Very excited about what's going to happen next year. Outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you all soon. 